Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. The year is 1921. The streets of New York's Lower East Side are crammed with pushcarts and stalls and people, hundreds of thousands of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe who arrived in waves over the past several decades, hoping to leave behind the poverty and pogroms of the old world to find a better life in America. Amidst the throngs, housewives move from stall to pushcart to storefront, filling their baskets with fruits, vegetables, bread, eggs, and for the herring that will constitute that night's meal, maybe also a bit of salty lox. For that, it's a visit to the appetizing store. So the stores were small. They were specializing in herring. This is Mark Russ Fetterman, the former third-generation owner of the appetizing store Russ and Daughters. They would have counters. Generally, the counter had space for one or two people behind it at a time. The stores were very narrow. And then various items would fill in the counters as they became available. Whitefish chubs, um, butterfish. And the clientele, says Hasia Diner, a professor of American Jewish history at New York University. The little Jewish ladies with their headscarves and baskets, these were some fierce customers. People are pushing up against each other, hordes, particularly of women, standing around a fishmonger and the shoving and the screaming and like, I want that fish. But undergirding the noise and the surliness and the hectoring, there's also something familiar and familial. Here's Norma Joseph, a professor of religions and cultures at Concordia University in Montreal. They're visuals of an Eastern European world. The smells are the smells of mom's kitchen. And the, the foods you look at are very familiar to you. And there's somebody behind the counter who says, this lox is better than that one. Here, I'll give you a taste. Now, at this point, we have to pause for a minute because, well... If you grew up in New York City and you're of a certain age, then you're probably familiar with what we're talking about. But if you're not from New York, or even if you are, and you're, say, in your 30s or early 40s, then you may be wondering, what's an appetizing store? And by the way, what in the world is appetizing? There is no good definition of appetizing as far as I know. In fact, every 10 years or so, the New York Times gets a hold of me, that FYI column, and says, what is appetizing? Can you define it? And the answer is always the same, no. Okay, so maybe there's no single definition of appetizing, but at least we can describe it. Okay, so first, uh, I, it's important to note that the appetizing is an American institution. This is Hasia Diner again. Jewish immigrants who came to the United States from Lithuania or Ukraine or Belarus would have never heard of an appetizing, and most of the foods that were sold in the appetizing they would have never known. So this is very much an American product. In other words, appetizing stores sold foods that were mostly new to Jewish immigrants. Herring, mackerel. This is Eve Jacknowitz. She's a culinary ethnographer based in New York. Ah, sturgeon. You know, I believe there was sturgeon, although after the Second World War, you will not find any rabbis certifying sturgeon as kosher. And, of course, gefilte fish. The gefilte fish that is sold in the appetizing stores tended to be sweet. Okay, and as such, it was following the Polish tradition. 
even though so many of the customers would have been coming from Ukraine and Belarus who didn't know sweet gefilte fish. Now, it's important to keep in mind, as Hasia Diner mentioned, that appetizing is a distinctly American New York Jewish thing. Jews were not eating lox with bagels and cream cheese in the cities and shtetls of Eastern Europe. But to really understand appetizing, to understand how and why it got started in America and what it means, we have to take a moment to travel back in time and space, to look at what Jewish immigrants from Poland and Russia and Ukraine and other places in Eastern Europe, to look at what these Jews were used to eating before they came to America. So what they ate um, was, for one thing, pretty limited. It was pretty monotonous. They were lucky to eat meat once a week on the Sabbath or Friday night, Sabbath during the during the day. Um, herring was a, a staple. It was their kind of fish of choice, as it were, or fish of no choice. Here's Eve Jocknowitz again. You have to say herring is the fish of our people. Herring is a fish uh, that is preserved in inland communities where you don't have have access to seawater fish. Herring might have been the only fish you got. And so you have the combination of affection and revulsion and familiarity and contempt for herring. We have sayings in Yiddish like, uh, If there is no fish, well, then you can have herring, meaning herring is not even fish. So the Jews of Eastern Europe ate a lot of herring, but they ate more than just herring. So garlic and onion were important. Lakshan, pasta. So lakshan became the big thing, and that's how lakshan kugels predominate. Kasha varnishkas are big. And when potatoes made their way to Eastern Europe in the early 19th century, they became a main staple of poor people's diet, including poor Jews. Potatoes. You know the potato song? I have had many people uh, from the old country tell me that is true. We really had potatoes every day. The potato song that Eve Chernowitz refers to is the Yiddish folk tune Bulbus. Sunday potatoes, Monday potatoes, Tuesday and Wednesday potatoes. But on the Sabbath, something special. A potato kugel. And then on Sunday... Back to regular potatoes. So East European Jews ate a lot of bulbous. And so did pretty much everyone else in that part of the world. In fact, a main reason we're taking this detour from the story of the invention of the American Jewish food tradition of appetizing is to recognize that all Jewish food traditions, just like most foodways of all peoples, are invented and borrowed from other cultures, even gefilte fish. Gefilte fish was a German food in which a big fish was stuffed. That's what gefilte means stuffing the fish. So minced fish, you minced the fish, you stuffed the big, wonderful fish with this chopped fish. The poor Jews then just were able to use the minced fish. Challah isn't an originally Jewish food either, by the way. The origins are a little murky, but Jews may have borrowed it from the German tradition of braided breads. But they did make it their own. As Chassia Diner puts it, Jews adopted and adapted the food traditions they borrowed. 
Jews ate what their non-Jewish neighbors ate, but they ate it in a kind of, we could call it, I'm not sure it's really a word, kosherized form. That is, uh, their neighbors were eating soups that they called borscht. Jews were eating borscht, but they didn't have pork in it, or they didn't combine meat and dairy. Okay, so to summarize, poor Jews in Eastern Europe ate herring, they ate noodlekugels, at a certain point they ate a lot of potatoes, and most of the dishes they prepared were shared by and borrowed from non-Jews. So what does any of this have to do with appetizing? Well, for one thing, knowing what Jews ate in Eastern Europe provides some context around what it must have been like for poor Jews to go from a world of herring and bland potatoes to a new world of amazing culinary abundance. Look back to the life of these immigrant Jews on the Lower East Side, people who'd eaten a monotonous diet for the most part, day in, day out, with just the relief of the Sabbath. They're in America now, and however difficult the conditions of their lives, however oppressive their work conditions, maybe sweatshop laborers or uh, working in um, some hideous garment factory, unsafe, dark, smelly, hot, crowded— they could afford to eat in a way they had never eaten before. And so the food places they um, that some of them set up, like Russ Daughters and so on and so on, became ways of celebrating having made the right decision to come to America. For the first time for many of these Jews, they had choices about what to eat. And they can choose. They can go into an appetizing and they can choose that this kind of herring and not that kind, this kind of smoked fish and not that kind. So we like to think it's about political freedom and religious freedom. I think that first came the ability to eat whatever you wanted. Including many things these East European Jews had never eaten or even known existed. Like, for example... Locks. So we can think of locks, which is so uh, much at the heart of the appetizing uh, store, the appetizing tradition, as a case where Jews from Eastern Europe, uh, from Ukraine, from uh, Belarus, from Moldavia, who would have never seen a salmon had met them on the street, become great connoisseurs of this German food. Well, locks was here. And slowly Jews thought it went very well with bagels and with cream cheese. And, the, and for Jews, this was becoming American. Okay, but actually we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Because the story of appetizing is in so many ways the story of the appetizing store. And the appetizing store, which really began with immigrant Jews selling fish out of barrels on push carts, begins not with locks, but with that old world mainstay. In the beginning world of appetizing, it all came out of herring, and herring represented the protein for the immigrant family. Now, to be clear, like most so-called Jewish foods, herring was not particularly Jewish. Lots of immigrants ate herring. Germans are eating herring. There are large numbers of Slavic immigrants who are coming to the United States. They're also living in New York. The Jewish community in New York, the Jewish population in New York, lives uh, cheek by jowl with a Ukrainian, um, not Jewish population. And they're all eating herring. But herring was the central item on offer in the distinctly Jewish business of appetizing. And as some peddlers, like Mark Rusfetterman's grandfather, Joel, saved a little money, they upgraded from a cart to a storefront. You walk down a few steps, you got a dark, dingy thing, and and what they were selling in the early days was, by and large, herring from barrels. 
these big barrels would be put in the back of this little store. And so my grandfather had his family living in the back room with the herring barrels until he could afford to uh, rent a walk-up tenement apartment across the street. As appetizing businesses took root and grew throughout the Lower East Side, Jewish fishmongers poured their profits back into the stores, which were still pretty rudimentary. And by the 30s, stores that were doing business could expand a little bit, and they would have sawdust on the floor. They would have fluorescent overhead lighting, probably would not have had much in the way of heat in the winter and no air conditioning in the summer. Uh, These were just one step above the pushcarts. Still, appetizing stores played an important role in bringing together Jewish foods from various parts of the world, introducing many of their customers to things they'd literally never heard of, like eggplant. So cold chopped eggplant salad. They didn't even know the word. It didn't exist uh, other than perhaps, again, for wealthy merchants who might have encountered it in uh, their various travels. But uh, the eggplant was something that uh, Jews in on the Lower East Side, again, most of them coming from uh, Eastern, Eastern Europe, from the Russian Empire, from Galicia, would have encountered through an exchange with Jews from Romania, where where eggplant was very much part of their cuisine, and they're Romanian Jews living in the same neighborhood, and also Jews from the Ottoman Empire. And, of course, appetizing stores began selling salmon, a fish that most Jews from Eastern Europe had never encountered. And the stores began offering it because salmon was plentiful and cheap. In the late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, there was this a, a huge amount of salmon in the Pacific, in the northern Pacific, from Alaska on down through California. And that salmon uh, was being shipped to the East Coast, particularly the Port of New York, to be transshipped to Europe, where there was also not had salmon, but not a lot of it. And it was very cheap. The stuff that stayed in New York found its way to the Lower East Side. Uh, salmon is a kosher fish, so it became a favorite, since it wasn't that expensive, of the denizens of the Lower East Side. And that's how Jews came to be so big into locks. Now, appetizing stores sold things besides fish. Many offered a range of canned goods, and some had a section for dried fruit, nuts, and candy. Absolutely. Well, for me, um, the window displays with the rows and rows of different dried fruits and nuts uh, are what I remember most clearly. I loved to look at the displays because all those sweets and all of the pretty colors of the apricots and peaches and different colors of raisins and different shapes of nuts and all different beautiful candies and chocolates, it just, well, like a candy store, it just, it was enchanting. But again, the appetizing store really revolved around fish. And the owners spent most of their time and effort on the procuring and selling of fish. In the old days, buying smoked fish at the smokehouse was a pretty rough business. It was these almost daily trips to the smokehouses. So you'd make the rounds from one smokehouse to another, all of this early in the morning, picking the fish you wanted and putting it in a truck and taking it with you. It was not a friendly business relationship. It was adversarial from the moment that the retailer like us would walk in the door, you know, they, the, the smokers were assuming that we wanted something for nothing, and we assumed they were trying to give us nothing for something, and that's the way the relationship started. So it was a lot of screaming and cursing and cigar smoking. And it was very akin to a street brawl, 
Except at the end of this, you know, when the transaction was made, okay, I'm taking these hundred pieces of fish, then, you know, they would shake hands and slap each other on the back and schmooze and tell stories. And then we would go on to the next smokehouse and, and do the same kind of thing. Selling the fish was no picnic either. The store's owner and his wife, and often children, were on their feet from early in the morning to late in the evening, sweating in the summer and freezing in the winter. It was a hard slog, daily grind of getting the product, the fish, into the store and then lining up every piece of fish with an appropriate customer encounterment and doing that hundreds or in the holiday period thousands of times a day. All the while dealing with some of the city's toughest customers. You know, this type of customer viewed shopping for food as a cross between making love and an act of war. And they approached it whenever they walked in. They just assumed that the store owner or the counterman uh, was somehow going to take advantage of them. You know, a piece of fish that wasn't super fresh. But they make you go in the back to get a fresh one. These were tough people, and they had to be. Life had never given them anything. And so if they were going to spend their few pennies in your store, you were going to earn it. You had to do what they wanted. You couldn't, you couldn't give them a piece of fish or a herring off the top of the barrel. That, that was unacceptable to a Jewish customer, particularly these little Jewish ladies. You had to go fishing for it. You had to turn over that barrel 10 different times before you pulled out the one herring they, they approved of. Still, the appetizing business worked. As the stores grew, they provided a living for the Jewish immigrant families that ran them. And they filled a niche for Jewish customers who, even though many no longer kept kosher, wouldn't feel comfortable buying cheese and herring and cream sauce and other dairy products at a delicatessen alongside the meat. Plus, appetizing stores made life easier. People who were working hard loved the ability to go quickly, to an appetizing store and buy whatever they need and not have, you know, pickling jars in their kitchens and not have to make it all themselves. It's too time-consuming when you're already working, not nine to five, but eight to seven, eight to eight. Appetizing was too much. You didn't have to go make your own appetizing. Nonsense. You weren't going to make herring at home. The house would smell of fish. That was too much. Locks and herring and pickles, nonsense. You were not going to do that in the basement or the kitchen. The house would smell. That would violate the aesthetics of the American home beautiful. The appetizing business began to peak during the end of the 1950s. On the Lower East Side, appetizing stores were as common as delis. As Jews began to move to other areas of Manhattan and to Brooklyn and the Bronx, some appetizing stores followed. By the late 50s, there were around 500 appetizing stores throughout New York City and the boroughs. The popular R&B group The Charioteers even included a song about bagels and locks in their greatest hits album, released in 1957. Catchy, right? I've got that song stuck in my head now. Anyway, as the 50s became the 60s and second-generation American Jews, the offspring of those immigrant parents who founded the appetizing stores, as they came of age, the appetizing stores began to slowly disappear. 
the college-educated American, multiple generations American offspring of the founders of these stores, you know, want to go into high tech and they want to go into uh, filmmaking or they want to go become doctors or college professors or uh, whatever. And the last thing they want to do is stand behind the counter in an apron, listening to uh, impatient customers screaming at them. And the hardworking founders of appetizing stores didn't want their kids to follow in their footsteps either. What did they want? They wanted their kids to, to get an education. Most of them didn't have uh, even high school. And, and uh, go to college and get a job in an office where they can put on a suit and tie and go to work eight hours a day in an office and come home basically looking and smelling like the way they went to work. Plus, as larger grocery stores and supermarkets began to appear and offer herring and lox and smoked fish and cheese and everything else, the appetizing store, like many mom-and-pop specialty stores, just couldn't compete. So by the mid to late 1970s, Jews, and increasingly non-Jews, still very much enjoyed lox and cream cheese on a bagel. They just didn't need appetizing stores to get appetizing foods like the second- and third-generation American Jews, who had for the most part successfully integrated into American society, appetizing had become Americanized. Even the humble bagel, once an almost exclusively Jewish bread, was widely available in grocery stores, thanks largely to the marketing prowess of the Lender family of Lender's bagels fame. Today, a handful of appetizing stores remain in New York. Russ and Daughters is still thriving on the Lower East Side. It's been in business for more than a century. Marie's Sturgeon Shop, established in 1946 in Midtown Manhattan, still delights New York palates as a gourmet specialty store. And Shelsky's, the first new appetizing store to open in quite a while when it was founded in Brooklyn in 2011, carries on the tradition with a modern twist, offering not only herring and lox and smoked and chopped fish, but also pastrami and corned beef and other deli favorites. And much more broadly, appetizing carries on in the proliferation of bagel stores around the world, which have elevated the bagel to a position of prominence above the fish and cream cheese that have been relegated to the status of toppings. But that's a story for another podcast. Given how prominently appetizing and appetizing stores once figured in New York Jewish life, it seems a little strange and maybe a little sad that the business and the Jewish food tradition it supported have been mostly forgotten and overlooked. Because appetizing matters as a way to better understand how Jews on the Lower East Side lived and ate and changed. I think that that is really one of the exciting parts of thinking about appetizing, uh, appetizing stores as um, hallmarks of his, historic change. An important way to think about how this population evolved over time. Appetizing helps us look at how Jews began to shift from a do-it-yourself kitchen economy to a retail consumption economy where you went out and you bought prepared food. I think what food can do is it can fill in the spaces, drape the garment over the armature, give you an idea of the texture of everyday life. I think if you look just at the food, you can see the whole culture uh, because the food will tell you how did they get it, how did they shop for it, what could they afford, what couldn't they afford, what was available, what wasn't available. You can see a whole lot more than just the food. That does it for this episode of Adventures in Jewish Studies. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. 
The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization and features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish studies scholar to your community. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Shear. Don't eat a menu when you order. Take the blue plate special away. Start with a napkin, a toothpick, and some water. What? No gravy? Then call the waiter and say, Bagel and locks with the cheese in the middle. Bagel and locks, let it toast on the griddle. Bagel and locks with the cheese in the middle. And a slice of onion on the side. Bagel and locks with the cheese in the middle. Bagel and locks, let it toast on the griddle. Bagel and locks with the cheese in the middle. And a slice of onion on the side. Bagels are round. 